Thanks for taking time to be back together tonight to worship God and to study from His Word. And I hope that our Sunday night times are not just viewed as filling time, that we're here worshiping God and we're being edified. And I hope the lessons that we look at on Sunday nights are, are helpful along those lines of learning more about God and, uh, and edifying ourselves. Well, around the religious world today, it will be no surprise to you to tell you that creeds are a prevalent aspect of denominations everywhere. Many creeds are well known. In fact, they're even memorized by folks who subscribe to those creeds. They spend time memorizing those creeds and learning those creeds. They're referenced in sermons many times. They're referenced in writings of well-respected denominational preachers. Um, they're recited even during worship services where the whole congregation will recite certain creeds. Uh, creeds, I want to tell you tonight, in spite of their wide acceptance, are dangerous and they need to be avoided. And not everything that, uh, not all creeds wear the name creed. Some wear the title of confession or statement of faith. And even though they have different names, I want to tell you they're just as dangerous as a creed. And the rise of church websites in recent years has led churches to publishing what is the equivalent of a creed. The what we believe section of websites of churches, even churches that claim to be churches of Christ, are in effect creeds and bear the same attributes as creeds and are similarly dangerous, and we need to be aware of that. So let's look at some of the problems with creeds in our lesson together tonight. We have to start off, though, with asking, what is a creed? A creed, by definition, is Webster defines it as a, belief, a brief authoritative formula of religious belief. A brief religious authoritative formula of religious belief a summarization of religious belief, if you will. It is an anglicized form of the Latin word credo. And that Latin word means simply, I believe. And so a creed is a summary of an authoritative formula of religious belief that is the equivalent of I believe, according to the, the, the Latin word credo. How are creeds used? Creeds, as I mentioned earlier, are often recited in worship services. Uh, they're recited many times and professed by someone before they're accepted in order to be baptized. They have to be able to recite a creed or give acceptance to a creed before that candidate will be baptized. They have to profess allegiance to a creed. Uh, they're recited at other times as well. Uh, the Apostles' Creed was recited by the, the congregation at George H.W. Bush's funeral. Uh, you may remember that President Trump uh, received uh, some, some ire and some raised eyebrows because he failed to recite that creed with everyone else. But they're cited at times like that. They're often required, you're often required to attest agreement with a creed before a certain group or denomination will, uh, will accept you into their fellowship. You have to say that I agree or I align with a creed before you can join certain denominations. I thought I'd spend a little bit of time giving you some examples of some prominent creeds, just so you're familiar with what they are and, and, and some of the language around them. 
One of those is the Apostles' Creed. That's a very famous creed, and I don't know if you can read that little writing on the screen there. I'm sorry for that. Uh, the Apostles' Creed, contrary to popular belief, was not written by the Apostles. In fact, it was not written for hundreds of years after the Apostles lived. Uh, various versions of the Apostles' Creed exist, but they go something like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He ascended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's the Apostles' Creed. Now, it's important to note that the Catholic Church here, the Holy Catholic Church that is being referenced is not the Roman Catholic Church. It's using the word Catholic by its root meaning there, meaning universal. So you could substitute Catholic there with universal, the Holy Universal Church. It is primarily, this Apostles' Creed is commonly used in the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the, uh, the Anglican Church, Presbyterian and Methodist churches. They all would ascribe to the Apostles' Creed. Um, and a version of this is required before you can be baptized in uh, many churches and in many denominational churches. Now, on the surface, there may be nothing that you would find to object with the Apostles' Creed. Maybe you think that it's all in line with what the Scriptures teach. That doesn't mean it's okay. We'll talk about that here in a minute. It's the dangers around that. The Nicene Creed, uh, uh, the Nicene Creed uh, was uh, created in AD 325 in the uh, Council of Nicaea. Uh, it was created to confirm the idea that there are three beings in the Godhead. Um, and again, there are various versions of this creed, but they go something like this. That's a little bit bigger print. Maybe you can read that. It is longer, but I'll read it just for reference here. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through Him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures. He ascended to heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. And with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. He, we believe the, in, in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection from the dead and to, the li and to life in the world to come. Amen. All right, that's the Nicene Creed. creed uh, the Nicene Creed. And again, you may not find anything in there that you would necessarily object to on the surface. All right. The next creed that we'll look at here is the Athanasian Creed. Uh, it has been in use since around the 6th century. Um, 
It is typically accepted by the Roman Catholic Church, Lutheran churches, Anglican churches, and Reformed churches. Um, this one is longer. I'll read it because it's interesting. This creed goes as far as saying if you don't believe in it, you're going to go to hell. Uh, and so uh, it's pretty authoritative in its uh, wording here. Uh, it goes like this. Anyone who does not keep it whole, I'm sorry, whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith. Again, this would be the universal church they would be referencing here, uh, not the Roman Catholic church. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. Now, this is the Catholic faith. And so this is it. This is saying this is what they're saying you have to agree with and you have to hold to this. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the di uh, divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty, majesty co-eternal. What quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated, the Son is uncreated, the Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet there are not three eternal beings. There is but one eternal being. So too, uh, so too there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, but there is one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty, yet there are not three almighty beings, there is but one almighty being. Thus, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, yet there are not three gods, there is but one God. Thus, the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually, both God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us to say there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither created nor made. He, is, he was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three fathers. There is one Son, not three sons. There is one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. Nothing in this trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller. In their entirety, the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything, as we said earlier, we must worship their trinity in their unity and their unity in their trinity. Anyone who desires to be saved should think thus about the trinity. But it is necessary for eternal salvation that one also believe in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. Now this is the true faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. He is human from the essence of His mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although He is God and human, yet Christ is not two but one. He is one, however, not by His divinity being turned into flesh, but by God's taking humanity to Himself. He is one, certainly, not by blending of His essence, but by the unity of His person. Just as one human is both rational and soul and rational is both rational soul and flesh, so true, so too is that one Christ is both God and human. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He is seated at the right, Father's right hand. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. He is coming 
At his coming, all people will arise bodily and give an accounting of their own deeds. Those who have done good to eternal life and those who have done evil will enter eternal, uh, eternal fire. This is the Catholic faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. All right. Again, I don't want to bore you with these, uh, these creeds, and I have one more that I want to look at. But it, this shows you how they're worded, and, you know, we would agree with a lot of the things that they say. But there's still dangers with, with creeds. And there are creeds that flat out are contrary to scriptures, one of those being the Tridentine Creed. Um, sort of sounds like gum, but it's not. Um, uh, it was created in 19, or 16, 1564 in the Council of Trent. And it, it, flat out, it flat out contradicts scriptures. I, and then you put your name here, with a firm faith, believe and profess all and every one of the things contained in that creed, which the Holy Roman Church makes use of. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, etc., the Nicene Creed. I both steadfastly admit and embrace apostolic and ecclesiastical traditions and all other observance and constitutions of the same church. I also admit the Holy Scriptures according to that sense which our Holy Mother Church has held and does hold, to which it belo belongs to judge of the true sense and interpretation of the Scriptures. Neither will I ever take and interpret them otherwise than according to the unanimous consent of the Fathers. In other words, I'm going to let the Roman Catholic Church decide how I interpret the Scriptures. And I'm signing up to that. I say that I put my name here. This is what I agree with. I also profess that there are truly and properly seven sacraments of the new law instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord and necessary for our salvation of mankind, though not all uh, forever, or forever one. To wit, baptism, confirmation, the Eucharist, penance, extreme unction, holy orders, and matrimony, and that they confer grace and that these baptism, confirmation, and ordination cannot be reiterated without sacrilege. I also receive and admit the received and approved ceremonies of the Catholic Church used in solemn administration of the aforesaid sacraments. I embrace and receive all and every one of the things which have been defined and declared in the Holy Council of Trent according, uh, concerning original sin and justification. I profess likewise that in the Mass there is offered to God a true, proper, and propitiatory sacrifice for the living and the dead, and that in the most holy sacrament of the, of the Eucharist, there is truly, really, and substantially the body and blood together with the soul and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that there is made a change of the whole essence of the bread into body, the body and of the whole essence of the wine into the blood, which cha uh, change the Catholic Church calls transubstantiation. I also confess that under either uh, kind alone, either the bread or the cup, Christ is received whole and entire and a true sacrament. I firmly hold that there is purga a purgatory and that the souls therein uh, detained are helped by the su su suffrages of the faithful. Likewise, that the saints re reigning with Christ are to be honored and evoked and that they offer up prayers to God for us and that their relics are to be, held, uh, to be had in veneration. So you're to pray to the saints, you're to hold these relics, the tooth of some saint, you're supposed to hold that in veneration. I most firmly assert that the images of Christ and of the perpetual virgin, the mother of God, 
and also of other saints ought to be had and retained, and that due honor and veneration are to be given them. I also affirm that the power of indulgences was left by Christ in the church, and that the use of them is most wholesome to Christian people. I acknowledge the Holy Catholic Apostolic Roman Church for the mother and mistress of all churches, and I promise and swear true obedience to the Bishop of Rome, successor to St. Peter, Prince of the Apostles, and Vicar of Jesus Christ. I likewise undoubtedly receive and profess all other things delivered, defined, and declared by the sacred canons and general councils, particularly by the Holy Council of Trent. And I condemn, reject, and anathematize all things contrary thereto, and all heresies which the church has condemned, rejected, and anathematized. I do at this present freely profess and truly hold this true Catholic faith, without which no one can be saved. And I promise most constantly to retain and confess the same entire and inviolate with God's assistance to the end of my life, and I will take care, as far as in me lies, that it shall be held, taught, and preached by my subjects, or by those uh, the care of whom shall appertain to me in my office. This I promise, vow, and swear, so help me God and these holy gospels of God. And so we have the Tridentine Creed. There are others. The Westminster Confession of Faith that is held to by the Presbyterians is one. The Augsburg Confession that is a confession of faith held to by the Lutherans. Uh, again, using a name other than creed, calling these professions of faith or statements of faith, faith uh, shows what's going on with creeds. And so hopefully that gives you an understanding of what we're talking about tonight. Why were creeds created? Why were they created? Well, they were created to oppose false doctrine. As you saw in a lot of those creeds, they were trying to uh, establish what they believed about the Trinity, for example. And, uh, and they were trying to clarify what that group would stand for and they would believe. Some were created to summarize what the Bible taught, uh, to give a, con a concise synopsis of what a group believed the Bible taught. I want to tell you, many times I believe that creeds were created out of sincere motives. They were trying, I think, to stand up for what they believed the Bible taught. I don't think there were necessarily any corrupt motives many times when creeds were created. Uh, and I think many people today who subscribe to creeds have sincere motives many times. But I want to tell you, motives don't make things right. In Acts chapter 26, verse 9, Paul said, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And he said he did many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth with a clear conscience, with sincere motives. And so just because creeds might have been created to defend what people thought was the truth doesn't mean that they're okay. There are many problems with creeds, and let's look at them. What's wrong with creeds? Well, first off, I would tell you I believe creeds are wrong because they imply that the Bible is insufficient or inadequate. I don't think anyone who creates a creed or ascribes to a creed would expressly state this, that they, they believe the Bible is inadequate or it is insufficient. But by the fact that they create a creed, it implies that they feel that way. Maybe they think that the, idea, the Bible is just too hard to understand. That it needs to be summarized in a way that can be understood. 
that maybe the religious leaders can understand it, but Joe Christian in the seat, he's not going to be able to understand it. We're going to have to break it down for him. We're going to have to simplify it. The Bible's too hard to understand. And it's not, it's not adequate in explaining and conveying God's will to us. There are many today who proclaim that the Bible's too hard to understand. But I want to tell you, when we imply that, or even outright verbalize that, which many will do. As you mentioned, some here in this creed, they said, we're not going to believe anything that the church fathers haven't told us we can believe. In other words, the Bible's too hard to understand. And when we do that, that implicates God's ability to give mankind a book that expresses His will. It says God wasn't able to do that, and He didn't do a good job of it. Yet the Bible said otherwise. In Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 3 beginning. Paul says, How that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Do we need church fathers to tell us what to believe? No. Paul said we could understand it. Do we need a creed to summarize it for us? Just give it to me in simple terms that I can understand in a creed. By the way, those creeds aren't easy to understand. It sort of sounds like a riddle many times, doesn't it? No, God said, I gave you this so that when you read it, you can understand. And we don't need creeds to tell us what to, under, to believe. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of God is. Understand what the will of the Lord is. That's a command. That means I can read this and I can understand it. In the absence of creeds, creeds imply that the Bible is insufficient and inadequate. That God couldn't give me a, work that, a book that I could understand. Maybe the idea behind creeds is that the Bible just is too long and it needs to be summarized. You know, there's too many words and details in here. Nobody's going to ever be able to get through all of this. We need to just summarize it in a short one-page document because this is too wordy, too lengthy, too detailed. Does that represent the idea and the attitude that the psalmist had about God's Word? In Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Can you imagine the psalmist saying, You know what? That's too much. Could you break it down for me? Maybe one page? That, this is too much to read and to study. Just, just give it to me in a simple one-page document that I can look at and understand. Not the case. Creeds imply that the Bible is insufficient and inadequate. I'll tell you also what's wrong with creeds is that they're simply unnecessary. If the Bible is understandable, which it pro professes about itself, which is clear that we can't understand it, then why would we need a creed? What is a creed going to add? What's a creed going to do for me if the Bible is from God and it is understandable? What does it add? What does it bring? It brings absolutely nothing. It's completely unnecessary. In fact, that's what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Lord, of Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us by glory and virtue. God has given us all we need in the Word. 
We don't need creeds. We don't need someone, which is apparent they've tried to do with the writing of creeds. We don't need someone to summarize God's word for us. It's unnecessary. Imagine you had a loved one who was away from you and been away for some time and had written a letter to you and you got it in the mail if you still do that or maybe you got an email from this dear loved one that you just have been dying to hear from. And someone intercepted that and said, don't worry about reading that. I'm just going to summarize it for you. I'll just give you the high points. Would you say, yeah, that sounds good. I don't, I don't need to read all that from my wife or my husband or my son that I haven't seen for six months. Just give me the high points. Tell me what they're telling me, and then I'll take it from there. No, you'd want every bit of it. And God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And we ought to be devouring this. We don't need creeds. Imagine you went to a doctor. You had a serious health problem. And he said, okay, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to write it down for you. I'm going to write it down for you. You need to do this in order to get well. But you hand that to somebody and say, hey, just give me the high points here. I'm not going to read what that doctor wrote. No, you'd want all of it. Why would we do it with the Bible? Creeds are simply unnecessary. I want to tell you there's another danger with creeds. And the danger with creeds is that they elevate certain doctrines above others. They go about to establish certain core doctrines that we need to be in alignment on these core doctrines and nothing else matters. If you can align on these few things, then you don't have to worry about the details of everything else. There are certain core doctrines that you need to be aligned with. Others try to do this apart from creeds, by the way. The idea being that we have to agree on certain fundamental teachings, but other teachings aren't that significant. I want to ask a question. If that's true that there are certain core doctrines that we have to agree on, Where's the list? And who gets to decide what is a core doctrine? Marriage and divorce? Homosexuality? Lying? Stealing? What, what, what makes a core doctrine? And what gets to be just put out on the periphery? I'll tell you, there's no such list. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 tells us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What doctrine is important? Or let's put it another way, what doctrine is unimportant? It's all important, isn't it? And creeds, I believe, elevate some doctrines above others. I'll tell you another problem with creeds, and this is a big problem is that creeds are cited as authority many times in defense of what a group believes or practices. Instead of going to this and saying, this is why we do what we do, they cite their creed or their profession of faith. And they say, we do this because the Westminster Confession of Faith says, this is why we believe what we believe. Rather than referencing the scriptures, they go to their creed. I'm going to tell you, this is dangerous. And others who would very boldly reject the idea that we would get our authority from some kind of written document other than the creed, uh, other than the Bible, I'm sorry, imitate this attitude. When others go by what some man said, we can all do this. 
When we put one person's interpretation on par with what the Bible teaches, we're in danger of doing the same thing that those who follow creeds are doing. And we can do this, by the way, when we just accept someone's interpretation without challenging and making sure it comes from the Bible. And it could be something as simple as a religious publication or bulletin article or a sermon that someone preached. If we can't go back to the Bible and prove it from there, I'm going to tell you, we should reject it. Acts chapter 17, verse 11 tells us where we get our authority. And it is the same place where the Bereans got their authority. Acts 17, verse 11, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether those things were so. The Bereans went back to the scriptures. They didn't take Paul's word on it. And we shouldn't take anyone's word on it. Creeds are not authority, and they are referenced as such, and that's a danger. Another danger with creeds is that creeds create division. Creeds are divisive by their nature. Creeds are put up in opposition. You have your creed, we have ours, and we're separate on that. You follow this creed to be a Baptist, you follow another creed to be a Methodist. You follow different creeds, different instructions, you're going to get different things. But if we only follow one absolute standard, and that absolute standard being the Bible, then we will all be unified. And that is the unification that Jesus wanted desperately as he prayed for it in John 17, verse 20. John 17, verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Jesus wanted us to be one. And if we're subscribing to different creeds that differ with each other and that aren't in harmony with God's word, we're not ever going to be one. We have to be agreed on one standard. And that standard has to be God's word. And creeds are a problem. I want to tell you because they contradict scripture, as we saw in some of those creeds. Blatant violation or contradictions with scripture. Creeds contradict scriptures, and many, I'm afraid, accept false doctrine because the creed that they subscribe to says it and teaches it, rather than going back to the scriptures to making sure the scriptures agree with their creed. It's dangerous when people accept the creed over God's word. In fact, it's condemned. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Galatians 1, verse 8, Paul, as we've mentioned many times, but it is so important, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And Paul says it again, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And he didn't say reference your creed. We need to reference the gospel. They contradict scriptures. And finally... I want to tell you a problem with creeds is that they diminish the power of the gospel. They take the focus away from the scriptures. To be a Christian in good standing, you need to know about some of the Bible, but you also need to know about these creeds. Did you hear some of those creeds? It says if you don't believe this, you can't be a Christian. You can't go to heaven. They diminish the power of the gospel. Potential converts are taught creeds in addition to the gospel. You need to understand this creed if you're going to be a Christian. You've got to understand it. So we're going to teach these new converts and potential converts the gospel. I mean, the creeds instead of the gospel. When, in fact, all we need is the gospel. In Romans chapter 16, verse 25, 
sorry, Romans 1, verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone, for everyone who believes, to the, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Creeds diminish the power of the gospel. Well, what do we do about creeds? What's the solution? I want to tell you, we need to see creeds for what they are. And this goes for anything that we believe or practice religiously. We need to evaluate things from a scriptural perspective. Do we believe and follow things just because some religious folks or organization told us it was so? We need to see creeds for what they are. And we do that by evaluating things in accordance with what the scriptures teach. And we need to see other things that even though they aren't formally called a creed are the equivalent. As I mentioned, the rise of church websites has prompted churches to post things that are basically creeds. Creed is a statement of belief. And you go out on church websites everywhere and you'll see a what we believe section. And they outline things that look a lot like those creeds that we looked at. And it has all the dangers that we've cited here. We need to understand that. There's a danger also with religious publications and periodicals that put forth things that people take as the gospel that are men's writings and opinions and thoughts. They can't be placed on par with the scriptures. Preachers need to be held in the same type of scrutiny that publications and periodicals are placed under just because a preacher said it. Even if that preacher is right down the line on everything we've ever studied from him, he might be wrong on another thing. Mark and I were talking about a topic last week, I think it was, and Mark shared an article with me from a preacher, and that article was right down the line. But we know that preacher is not right down the line on other subjects, and so if I accept what he taught on this, I say, well, he must, be, he must be right, he must be faithful. And I just said, well, they check here, he's a good guy. Well, he's not necessarily a good guy on every topic. I need to make sure everything that that preacher teaches is in accordance with God's Word. I want to tell you, we need to be studying God's Word. And we need to be proficient in God's Word so we don't feel a need for someone else to give us a synopsis or a summary of it. I need to be proficient, and each one of us need to be proficient enough in this that we can go here to show why we believe what we believe, why we do what we do. And we don't have to rely on someone else to give us a one-page summary of what we believe. No, we believe it because it's here. We're familiar with this. We're accomplished in this. We need to do this because the devil is constantly trying to introduce error. And we need to be on guard. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, beginning. And he, gave, he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should be no longer children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. The devil's trying to blow us around with false doctrines. He's going to try and slip them in wherever he can. And this is our only protection against that. We need to be proficient in the scriptures. 
And finally, as we think about the solution to creeds, I want to tell you we need to outright reject all false teaching. The prominent thought in the religious world today is that you need to just tolerate false doctrine. That it's okay, that it doesn't really matter. If you can align on the core doctrines, then you can let the false doctrine go all around you as long as you align on the core. And that core, by the way, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And folks now will profess, as long as you believe Jesus is the Son of God, then you're fine and don't worry about everything else. Yet we have to reject false doctrine. If it comes in a creed, if it comes in any other form, we need to reject false doctrine. You're not closed-minded. You're not exclusive. You're not some kind of backwoods hick if you don't accept false doctrine. In fact, we're told we need to reject it. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2 beginning. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Don't give heed. Reject false doctrine. You know, the world today tells us if you stand up against false doctrine, if you oppose false doctrine, you're the problem. You're being divisive. You're being closed-minded and exclusive. No, if you reject false doctrine, you're doing what God told you to do. We need to stand against false doctrine. We need to stand against creeds. Creeds are dangerous. And they're unnecessary. We should avoid creeds. We don't need them. We only need the Bible. And we need to be studying it so we can align our lives to what it teaches and we can help others do the same. Are you doing this? Are you committed to the Scriptures? Are you studying them? Does your study of the Scriptures reflect the attitude you profess that this is all you need? If this is all you need, are you studying it like you should? Are you living by it like you should in your life? If not, is there something we can do to help? If there is, would you let us know while we stand, while we sing?